It is my absolute honour and pleasure, I can't say this enough, to you know, introduce Professor Cora Kaplan, who is just wonderful, and without whose work on Bert Browning, the recovery around Aurora Lee, we may not be here today. You know, and Cora has been you know, incredibly supportive of you know, other scholars working on Bert Browning and on 19th century women's writing and politics more widely. Uh, you know, uh, and it's just amazing. Um, so Cora, the official bit, is honorary professor of English at Queen Mary University of London. Um, one of the most recent projects she's been working on is the co-editorship of the 10-volume History of British Women's Writing and has also been writing, um, this is really nicely written, writing on and off uh, with undiminished enthusiasm about Bert Browning's life and poetry since the early 1970s and has a wonderful kind of wealth of material. So please do um, join me in welcoming Cora because it's a joy. I'll give this to you. Simon. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Lovely intro and a wonderful set, uh, talk setting, setting her up as the political poet that I'm going to explore further. Um, I, I've called, yes, I've called her a cosmopolitan poet and I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, and I just want to say that that is a a sketch I think that Arabelle, her sister, did of her with her dog Flush that was given to her by Mary Russell Mitford um, when, when she was in Turkey uh, in the interval between her two residences in London. And I thought, we've, we've seen all those other lovely, more formal portraits, I quite like that. Places are ideas, and ideas can madden or kill Elizabeth Barrett. Browning wrote to her friend Elizabeth Ogilvy in 1850, places are too much or else too little, muses her avatar Aurora, the poet protagonist of, uh, of the novel poem, as she called it, Aurora Lee. When she returns, Aurora does, as an adult to Italy, where Aurora's Italian mother and English father had loved, lived, and died when Aurora was still a child. Notice she gets Italy and England together now in the poem so that, they, so that uh, Italy becomes a progenitor, not just, not just um, a place of exile. Barrett Browning's modern biographer, Margaret Forster, thought places haunted Elizabeth all her life. True enough, she was acutely sensitive to them, but they also, as both wonderfully imagined settings and as more abstract ideas, inspired her most innovative, eloquent, and challenging verse. Countries as political and geographical entities, or in the case of Italy, aspiring to a unified national identity, loom large. And cities, London, Paris, Florence, are key spaces, actual and poetic, historical and symbolic, for her lifelong mission to question and redefine the uses of poetry and the person of the poet. Her mature work argues through its formal innovations, as well as its rhetoric and narrative, that this high art might be practiced by a woman who could write about love and about politics in the same breath, could champion the cause of anti-slavery. She was an advocate of anti-slavery all her life in spite of uh, the family's embeddedness in slavery, but there are some contradictions there. Uh, 
the cause of slavery, child exploitation, Italian reunification, and its international ramifications without pausing to justify either herself or her subject. I have called her here a cosmopolitan poet, embracing the idea that all people have rights and civic responsibilities that come with being a member of the world, with whole world philosophy and sensibilities, rather than as a citizen of a particular nation or place. The idea is that one's identity transcends geography or political borders, and that responsibilities or rights are derived from membership in a broader class, humanity. Now, that I've just quoted is a 21st century definition grabbed from the web. Uh, but I think it goes to the heart of what she actually believed. But as someone with a lifelong interest in politics in an age when the nation state as an idea and fact itself were undergoing radical redefinition, she was, like many of her contemporaries, much concerned with the limits and imagined possibilities of political nationhood. Indeed, much of her poetic output from the 1850s to her death in 1862 was verse which recorded the highs and lows of the struggles of the Italian Risorgimento. Uh, that, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, but in any case, uh, Italian unification. Now, I'm going to go to London. Let's see. Uh, in 1835, Edward Barrett Moulton Barrett moved his large family from the seaside resort of Sidmouth, Devon, where they had lived from 1832 after the sale of Hope End, to 74 Gloucester Place. That's not Gloucester Place. I, am, I don't have a picture of it. Near Regent's Park in London. Now, London in the mid-1830s was a dramatic expanding and changing city. Migration from the English countryside and from Ireland had swelled its numbers exponentially and created the poverty and central London slums uh, that, that EBB would write about in Aurora Lee. I keep, I keep wanting to, to um, toggle between Elizabeth Barrett and Elizabeth uh, uh, Barrett Browning, and sometimes I'll just use EBB, because to call her Elizabeth all the way through, I think, is always a little bit problematic, but hey, I'll probably do it. <laughs> um, Housing for the more affluent at the center was also you know, increasing uh, by leaps and bounds with new housing always being thrown up. Now, Marlebin, where the Barrett settled in 1838 at 50 Wimpole Street, uh, made famous by the film and, and Bézier's play, uh, and where, where Barrett Sr., uh, Edward Barrett, and, and the rest of the children lived for the rest of their lives, the ones who, who didn't marry and stayed at home. Uh, had become a very exclusive address. And there's the, there's, there's you can see, that, um, there's the not, not, not blue plaque, but orange plaque, on, picture of the orange plaque on the house that still says, that says poetess. Uh, we wouldn't have that now. After, afterwards, wife of Robert Browning lived here. <laughs> I, I, I like the, uh, um, I don't think she would have quite liked that uh, so much. Just a, and, and there, there's the <coughs> house next door, which is what, uh, which because the 50 Wimpole was pulled down and, and rebuilt, but that's basically what the house would have looked like you know, when they moved there in 1838. Um, here's Turner's uh, age, you know, famous picture of the railway, um, which I'm sure you all know. Here's some blank pages, which I don't know why they're there. 
an exhibition at the Royal Academy, a sketch. I'm just kind of running through a few images of London. I'm trying to get them in the 1830s. And, and this is uh, Robert Hayden, who becomes an epistolary friend, his, his wonderful portrait of the World Anti-Slavery Convention, uh, which hangs in the National Portrait Gallery, in which I, uh, I recommend you all go and see. It's an extraordinary picture, which I won't dwell on now. Only, only one bonnet uh, uh, in it. Uh, the, and there was a big kerfuffle about the women being made to sit upstairs. Uh, um, a bit of the poor. Uh, I've missed one on Euston Station. Um, the Age of Steam, this is, a, this is a time of the Age of Steam. The railway age was transforming England in its capital. Um, Euston Station, uh, the first of the great metropolitan station, opened in 1838. Uh, London was a place of social and political as well as cultural innovation, full of reformers, politicians, writers, artists. The Barrett family arrived in London only a few years after two transforming pieces of legislation that were passed by Parliament, the Reform Act of 1832, extending the franchise, of course, uh, and the electoral power of the cities, and the Abolition of Slavery Act in 1833, uh, which Simons referred to, um, which comes into effect a year later in August 1834, but through the 18, 1830s till 38, there's still a kind of apprenticeship system that doesn't get abolished till the end of 1838. Uh, the latter, of course, having a major impact on the Barretts, whose money came from slaveholding in Jamaica and who were compensated for the loss of their slaves uh, by the government, a huge amount of money set aside, 10 million, which is a lot of money set aside to compensate the slave owners. And Elizabeth, although she was anti-slavery, she believed that compensation was, uh, was correct and important. Um, also, of course, in the years that followed, but including her, her years in, in, you know, her London and England years, some of them, uh, was the Chartist movement and its six political points, uh, uh, you know, the beginning of the upsurge of working class uh, protest, both against conditions and, being, and, and their exclusion uh, from the political nation. And for a Democrat, as she called herself, like Elizabeth, that was, those were very important, but also scary times, because Chartism also threatened violence against uh, the established government. Now, the shy, reclusive poet missed the sea air uh, and found it hard to adjust to the monotony of the narrow brick streets, the oppressive pavements and walls, the per pervasive soot, and the first winter where, she complained in a letter, the city was wrapped like a mummy in a yellow mist so closely that I've scarcely had a glimpse of its countenance since we came. But to be at the cultural hub of England thrilled her and fired her literary imagination and aspirations. London, she wrote to her new friend, the writer Mary Russell Mitford, was a wonderful place, the living heart and center of an immense circle of humanity, um, of intellect, of art in all its forms, of the highest memories consecrated by genius. It is your Fletcher's London, our Shakespeare's London, my Chaucer's London. Uh, but even then, in a, in a later letter to Mary Russell Mitford, she's looking beyond London, like, like, a little bit like Jane Eyre at the top of Thornfield, you know, looking toward the future, looking toward Europe. Of course, that doesn't everybody want to travel? You know, she writes, I'm just paraphrasing here, uh, and, you know, to France, to Spain, to Italy, uh, Italy in big caps. 
Even if her health and a certain social timidity often kept her at home, she enjoyed the feeling that just outside there was London's pulsing social and political and cultural life. Her distant cousin, John Kenyon, a man her father's age, a patron of the arts, introduced her to Mitford, and the next day after that, uh, at a small dinner to Wordsworth, whom she greatly admired. Actual and epistolary literary and artistic friendships were enabled through Kenyon, and as Elizabeth became more and more known through her poetry, but also through prose contributions to a wide range of journals by writers, artists, and thinkers who wrote to her directly, and some of those direct solicitations she took up, and some, of course, she just turned back. Um, an omnivorous reader, she was interested as interested in new current writing, journalism, poetry, and fiction, Anglophone and European, uh, uh, of the world she had entered, as in the classics she knew so well, and the romantic poets who had formed her aesthetic, and together with, of course, classical literature. In 1838, she published the first volume, The Seraphim and Other Poems, to appear with her father's permission under her own name, Elizabeth Barrett Barrett. Widely reviewed in the major journals of the day, this critical attention, not all of it approving, but the best of it serious and attentive, gave her reputation a significant boost. Cruelly, just as this happened, her health deteriorated badly. Fear for her lungs made her doctors insist on a move to a warmer climate, and in late summer of 1838, she went with her maid and with her adored brother, Bro, and other family members who came and went, to another resort, Torquay in Devon, the mild microclimate making it popular as a place to convalesce. She spent three years in Torquay, years marked by tragedy, the sudden death of her brother Sam in Jamaica, and much worse, as she held herself to blame, the death in Torquay of Bro in a boating accident with friends, which left her prostrated by grief. Torquay became a place that could and did kill. Not surprisingly, she came to hate it and long for London, and at last in 1841, was able to return to her rooms in Wimpole Street, which for years she almost never left, her health still being very frail, uh, but, where she, but where work, writing, once more rescued her. She was able to take up new projects and commissions, acquire new and important collaborations, interlocutors and friends, only very rarely ones made fa met face to face. These are the years when Elizabeth is avidly consuming contemporary French fiction by Georges Sand and others, fascinated by the cross-dressing Sand in spite of what she regarded as the impurities of the novels, uh, the unconventional self-presentation, dressed like a man, and the freewheeling sexual and romantic life of Georges Sand. Um, I think she would kind of liked to have been Byron and George Sand combined, you know, she'd had her way. Her poems of 1844 marked a significant advance in her work, introducing bolder experimentation in terms of subject matter, prosody, and form, and showcasing the range of poetic genres and subject matter that she could address. Her love of narrative is expressed in several long ballads, and her imaginative engagement with the young queen explored in Crowned and Wedded. She'd written an earlier poem about, about, the, about the queen. Uh, Opening with a drama of exile, a long dramatic poem about the new and strange experience of fallen humanity, reaching back to the classical form of Greek tragedy and to Milton, but imagined as a kind of sequel in which Lucifer as an extreme Adam, representing the ultimate tendencies of sin and loss, and Eve, whose allotted grief and consciousness of her originating the fall, are best expressed by a woman poet, 
are exiled figures with whom she partly identifies. And this is a major poem in, the, in this long series of preoccupations with the idea of exile. The feminist perspective suggested in her exploration of Eve, and earlier, as Simon has said, is given full expression in two daring sonnets to George Sand, the first to George Sand, a desire celebrating her androgyny. Self-called George Sand, whose soul amid the lions of thy tumultuous senses moans defiance and answers roar for roar as spirits can. I would some mild, miraculous thunder ran above the applauded circus in appliance of thine own nobler nature's strength and science, drawing two pinions, white as wings of swan, from thy strong shoulders to amaze the place with holier light. That thou, to woman's claim and man's, mightst join beside the angel's grace of a pure genius sanctified from blame, till child and maiden pressed to thine embrace to kiss upon thy lips a stainless fame. Thank you, Sharon. Um, I, I haven't asked Sharon to read the second of the poems, uh, which. It, to George Sand, which follows this sort of sanctifying of Sand, which is called To George Sand a Recognition. And this extols her as true genius but true woman, whose denial of her femininity is vain and whose women's hair, all unshorn, floats back disheveled strength in agony. Uh, in this sonnet, only God can unsex thee on the heavenly shore where unincarnate spirits purely aspire. Uh, and I think, I think this, is, this is fascinating in terms of her resistance and reaction against femininity in her, in her childhood and adolescence. Um, it's as if she's now accepting this, and I think that's very important to what's gonna happen, that the way she uses the feminine in Aurora Lee and other poems uh, to come. In contrast to the high seriousness of these sonnets is one of the critics' favorites, Lady Geraldine's Courtship, in which a poor poet woos and against all odds wins the hand of a title lady. Although as Cupid's arrow is poetry itself, we are at times almost in the realm of comic verse. Uh, the idiom, the protagonist, and the gossipy chorus of onlookers feel both modern and, I would argue, urban. And because I was a poet, and because the public praised me with a critical deduction for the modern writer's fault, I could sit at rich men's tables, though the courtesies that raised me still suggested clear between us the pale spectrum of the salt. And they praised me in her presence. Will your book appear this summer? then returning to each other, yes, our plans are for the moors, then with whisper dropped behind me, there he is, the latest comer. Oh, she only likes his verses. What is over, she endures. Quite low-born, self-educated, somewhat gifted, though, by nature, and we make a point of asking him, of being very kind. You may speak, he does not hear you. And besides, he writes no satire. All these serpents kept by charmers leave the natural sting behind. There, obedient to her praying, did I read about the poems made to Tuscan flutes 
or instruments more various of our own, read the pastoral parts of Spencer, or the subtle interflowings found in Petrarch's sonnets. Here's the book, The Leaf is Folded Down. Or at times, a modern volume. Wordsworth's solemn thoughted idyll, Howitt's ballad verse, or Tennyson's enchanted reverie. Or from Browning, some pomegranate, which, if cut deep down the middle, shows a heart within, blood tinctured, or a veined humanity. <laughs> well, you can see this is before she met Browning, but she's already <laughs> inviting him in and, and praising him. Um, so, and, and uh, you know, you can hear Byron's wit, you know, <laughs> and, and the wit of uh, perhaps more 18th century uh, poets, uh, po uh, you know, driving, flitting through this, this kind of verse. It's not, it's not, it's a tone she takes up in Aurora Lee, but it's not one she uses so often, and I absolutely love it. Um, but on a much more somber note, but also well-liked, by contemporary readers. The cry of the children was seen as one of the most powerful poetic attacks on child labor in the mines and factories, a major issue, of course, in the 1840s. The campaign against child labor culminated in two important pieces of legislation, the Factory Act 1833 and the Mines Act 1842. The Factory Act prohibited the employment of children younger than nine years of age and limited the hours that children uh, between nine and 13 could work. And here's just a couple of verses from that. For, oh, say the children, we are weary and we cannot run or leap. If we cared for any meadows, it were merely to drop down in them and sleep. Our knees tremble sorely in the stooping. We fall upon our faces trying to go. And underneath our heavy eyelids drooping, the reddest flower would look as pale as snow. For all day, we drag our burden, tiring the cold dark underground. Or all day, we drive the wheels of iron in the factories round and round. For all day, the wheels are droning, turning. Their wind comes in our faces till our hearts turn, our heads with pulses burning. And the walls turn in their places, turns the sky in the high window, blank and reeling turns the long light that drops adown the wall, turn the black flies that crawl along the ceiling, all are turning all the day, and we with all. And all day the iron wheels are droning. And sometimes we could pray, oh ye wheels, breaking out in a mad moaning, stop, be silent for today. And again, this is one of many poems, as Simon indicated earlier, in which the child, uh, you know, is is the speaker, uh, the subject, um, and you know, she's she. I think also the the prosody, the the movement in that poem, the use of of all those uh, participles, droning, turning, burning, uh, really evokes the repetitive labor. Uh, and the kind of the, the miserable, uh, um, I can't even find a word for it. I think she's got it better than I do, uh, of the factories uh, that the 
the sky as such a kind of diff distant, uh, a distant thing that the children can't reach. Um, this this poem, the cry of the of the children, is partnered by the cry of the human. Uh, prompted by the agitation to repeal the corn laws, which kept tariffs on imported grains, including wheat and barley, so high. Uh, and remember, this is the, the 40s are, are often thought of as the hungry, you know, they're called the hungry 40s, uh, where there was a lot of, a lot of poverty. Uh, and, you know, the, the factories were having a, a domestic factories and domestic, uh, the, the domestic economy generally was having a hard time. Um, so it, it, these high prices persisted even when harvest made, even when good when bad, even when bad harvest made bread the staple food of the poor too expensive, so they wouldn't let in uh, the foreign produce, and, and bread was of course what what everybody needed to eat. Here Elizabeth Barrett argues that the curse of gold upon the land, the lack of bread enforces, the rail cars snort from strand to strand like more of death's white horses. The rich preach rights and future days, and hear no angels scoffing, the poor die mute with starving gaze on corn chips in the offing. Uh, these are very particular poems. They are very, they're very present poems, and I think they are poems that she wouldn't have written uh, in, in Hope End or Sidmouth. Uh, you know, they, they're not reaching back to oppression in classical times, they're absolutely confronting what's before Parliament, what's part of agitation, north and south, every day. Um, and they're also trying out the voice of the woman poet who can just speak of these things with confidence and without apology. So these hard-hitting polemical poems on contemporary topics, including Crowned and Buried, uh, a slightly more problematic poem that argued that the remains of the flawed Napoleon returned to France uh, since, he ha since he had the genius to be loved, deserved the justice to be honored in his grave. So there was a, there was a big kerfuffle in France about whether Napoleon would receive uh, a, a kind of legitimate and honorary burial. And, and, and this again is part of of a part of Elizabeth Barrett's, you know, fascination with strong men and strong leaders, even if they were, even if they were flawed or even if they were oppressive, and particularly with Napoleon because the people loved him. You know, the idea of the populist is also a very strong vein in what she's writing and seems to go against the kind of democratic impulses in in some of the rest of and the feminist impulses in her other in her other poetry. The poems of 1844, then, I'm saying, I think I'm trying to say, treads a fine line, a uh, well-judged line between the controversial and the more traditional, reaching back to admired forebears, Milton, Shelley in a moving sonnet on grief, Byron, of course, um, in, the, in the satire of Lady Geraldine's courtship, and Wordsworth in a sonnet dedicated to him. But everywhere in her preoccupation, in poem after poem, uh, is, the, is, is her interest in the ethics of poetry and the responsibility of poets. Published in the United States under the title A Drama of Exile and Other Poems, it gave her an international reputation. And it really, I mean, she already was well known, but now it was sort of confirmed. I would argue that this major collection, uh, and it's a big one, 
not, although it doesn't explicitly touch on London life, no Wordsworthian worthy in homage to Westminster Bridge here, suggests in its social, political, and humanitarian concerns and their urgency, the importance of her move, however interrupted, to the nation's capital. So when I discovered Elizabeth Barrett Browning in the early 1970s, I was only familiar with the fairy story of Robert Browning's wooing of Elizabeth over the years 45, 46, and their secret marriage and escape to the continent. Uh, Italy would become their home through their married life, and her sonnets from the Portuguese, her soaring poetic account of their courtship and marriage. That's what I knew, um, and that's what most readers did know. And I don't want to do down sonnets for the Portuguese because I think it's a fantastic sonnet sequence and it still makes me cry when I read it. Um, um, but uh, if you also, um, it's one of the great 19th century literary love stories. Uh, but I would also recommend, if you've never read them, and I think they're around in sort of shorter, easily got editions, their letters to each other, enabled by the penny post and two deliveries a day. Uh, and they're, they're, they're absolutely, she was a wonderful letter writer, and uh, Browning too, but they're absolutely wonderful letters uh, of a courtship. I can't resist then a few slides of Marlebin's Parish Church, which you see before you, where they got married. Only a few short steps from Windpole Street, but I think they went in a cab. Because uh, lucky they weren't seen. It's right in the neighborhood of Wimpole Street. It's, it seemed to me, nobody sort of talks about what a risk they took. Uh, there's a, a historical view of the inside. There it is in the present day. Uh, and the altar where they got married. And of course, the memorial. <laughs> <laughs> with a, a quite good sort of bar-relief in this church where married uh, a marriage of, of Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett. At least it doesn't call her a poetess. Um, okay. And so London too and this courtship and marriage was something else that the move to London accomplished. And so as a place, it's also the place of, you know, of the uh, unexpected um, romance and love that was to take her away uh, from, uh, from her father's household. And although we can talk about the fiction of the oppressive father, and people have sometimes mitigated by saying, well, you know, these weren't very good marriages they were making. He was a bit of a monster. <laughs> and and his, you know, his absolute degree that none of his children could marry, and they, they were cut off from any income. Elizabeth, of course, had an income. She had an income from her grandmother uh, and from an uncle who left her a ship with income. All of this income, of course, was based on the profits from slavery. So one of the most public events that have taken place when she was Torquay was the World Anti-Slavery Conference in 1840, movingly depicted by her friend Benjamin Robert Hayden in The Painter of Historical Scenes, and I've shown you that slide earlier. Against slavery all her life, although her family's wealth came from it, her sentiments were well known in abolitionist circles in the United States, and in 1845, I think they solicited a poem from her uh, conceived in London, but written in the early period of her marriage. 
The Runaway Slave at Pilgrim's Point was published in the 1848 edition of the anti-slavery annual, The Liberty Bell, and it takes up the cause of American abolition, deploying both sentiment and melodrama in the powerful, avowedly radical polemic. Its eponymous speaker is a woman with a black face. She's not one of these, um, you know, she, she, she's very emphatic that the woman speaker is black. She's, she's not a mixed-race figure um, uh, who declares several times in its opening stanzas that her skin is dark as night, I am black, I am black, she intones at many other points of the poem. In her grief, she suffocates her too white baby son, the product of her master's rape, and pursued and cornered by slave catchers at Pilgrim's Point in Plymouth, New England, Massachusetts, where the first white pilgrims landed and God was thanked for liberty. The runaway slave is a chiaroscuro tour de force with whiteness and blackness, dark and light as its leitmotif. The speaker queries God's justice for indeed, if he made humans in both shades, he must have cast his work away under the feet of his white creatures with a look of scorn that the dusky features might be trodden again to clay. It's a brutally explicit poem, at once one of the most powerful and most troubling of anti-slavery poems, which have a very large oeuvre and fill a big fat book if you want to ever explore <laughs> the anti-slavery verse from the 18th century onward in both America and in Britain. And it ends with the anonymous poet speaker at the point of death, answering the slaver's whips and curses with her own. Your white men are after all not gods indeed, nor able to make Christ's again do good with bleeding. We who bleed stand off. We help not in our loss. We are too heavy for our cross and fall and crush you and your seed. And uh, this poem, I think, is very shocking still today in the violence of its language and the prophetic power of its Promethean speaker, another and more anguished version, I think, of Eve, the other exile. Uh, and it's a key poem always for me for understanding the oppositional and radical ambitions of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poetry, at the same time indicating its limits uh, so it's somewhat problematic identification with and ventriloquizing of the black woman's voice, her murderous anger and her martyr death. Uh, in the very last verse, she rescinds her curse uh, at the hands of her oppressors. And although set in the United States, the poem also evokes that other side of slavery, Jamaica, a place, of course, identified with the family she had left. When she wanted to put the notice um, in, in the paper of her marriage, she says to Browning, shall I put Elizabeth Barrett of Cinnamon Hill, which is her father's Jamaican estate? And Browning says, no, just Wimpole Street. <laughs> um, uh, uh, it's a place identified with the family she had left, her father and brothers who had rejected her, but also the inheritance that allowed her to be free of them. Uh, and critics, Angela Layton has argued in her wonderful book on Elizabeth Barrett Browning that this is much an accusation against the father, uh, who said, you know, who I th think uh, she once said, you know, she treat he treats uh, the, the the problem, you know, the problem is not in, so much in the person as in the sort of institution. He he treats his grown up children as if they were slaves. Um, and so that there's a, a, a not too covert assault 
uh, on the father who somehow learns his way of being with his children uh, from the cruelty of slavery itself. Although, okay, I've got, I've lost my place now. <laughs> Uh, another powerful poem about slavery, both more abstract and more international in its reference to wrongs, is inspired by the Greek slave of the American sculptor Hiram Powers, who she gets to know uh, in, when she goes to Italy. Incidentally, when they go to Italy uh, and they're in Florence and they, uh, you know, they go to Rome a lot, they go to Rome in the, uh, in the winters because it's warmer in Rome, and they go to the hills above Italy to get to... Um, uh, Bagno de Luca and other places because it's too hot in the summers. Uh, the, she, she mostly gets to know a lot of American expatriates and the English community. It, it isn't like she has a wide range of Italian friends. You know, she sort of stays with that more that close community uh, of expatriates. So uh, Powers Like the Brownings is an expatriate living in Florence where he produced his most celebrated statue the Greek slave, which at once gave him a place among the leading sculptors of his, of his time. Okay, let me get there. There it is. It, it uh, attracted more than 100,000 viewers when it, when it toured America in 1847, and in 1851 it was exhibited in Britain at the center of the Crystal Palace uh, ex exhibition, which, uh, which Elizabeth went to. Um, when she was back visiting in England in 1851. But I think she may have seen the, seen the statue earlier on, in, of course, because the poem is, is in the 1850 collection. Poem and statue were much admired by American abolitionists. It's classical white marble universalizing the subject of oppression. They say ideal beauty cannot enter the house of anguish. On the threshold, she stands, an alien image with enshackled hands called the Greek slave, as if the artist meant her that passionless perfection which he lent her, shadowed, not darkened, where the sill expands, to so confront man's crimes in different lands with man's ideal sense. Pierce to the center, art's fiery finger, and break up ere long the serfdom of this world. Appeal fair stone from God's pure heights of beauty against man's wrong. Catch up in thy divine face, not alone east griefs but west, and strike and shame the strong by thunders of white silence overthrown. And I think that the ambiguity of that last line, uh, the thunders of white silence and, how, and what overthrown actually refers to uh, is quite wonderful. Uh, and I think the, the, the universalizing uh, that Powers wanted, as well as the specificity uh, of American slavery, but the universalizing of wrongs uh, that, again, goes to the heart of, of the kind of politics um, that, she, that she avowed. But it's also this, in some ways, I think, a safer poem <laughs> uh, than, than The Runaway Slave. It doesn't have its darker side. 
you know, it's not concerned with m rape and murder and miscegenation. Um, and and it, it's violence of, of a different kind. Uh, so we might think about those two poems in juxtaposition uh, in a way as part of her uh, thinking about how you write an abolitionist poem. It is Italy and Florence and, and in Florence that Barrett Browning finds her next and most enduring subject, the Risorgimento, the long struggle by different figures and groups to unify Italy as a nation. The Brownings found a home in Florence after some toing and froing, and here, uh, in apartments in Casagidi, right near the Pitti Palace. And of course, that's Casagidi today. Uh, but here are some interiors. Uh, you know, you can go and you can go and visit and, and kind of look at where they lived, and it's, they've been done up to sort of represent it. They had to go out and buy all the furniture, uh, and they thought it was very cheap. You could pick up all these uh, these things very cheaply. Uh, I, I once went through it when it was between tenants, you know, when it was empty, and I loved that because it was just like looking at it the way the Brownings had seen it uh, when they when they went in to. to uh, to take it, and now it feels very cluttered. Here's a, the bedroom, and I think, oh, I had a picture of, a stu of the study, but that seems to have gone, gone away. Uh, and here's the Pitti Palace itself. Uh, her much underrated but fascinating long poem, Casagidi Windows, is divided into two parts. On the first part, detailing the high hopes of Italian uh, and Italians and many Europeans and other international liberals that the Grand Duke Leopold II of Tuscany, who had granted Florentines the right to form a militia, would together with the election of Pius IX, who had granted the freedom of the press and amnesty to political prisoners, pave the way for unification and civic freedoms. And on the 12th of September, uh, 1847, the Browning's first wedding anniversary, they watched in amazement and exultation from the balcony the huge peaceful demonstration, 40,000 incomers plus the Florence population pass under their window. Opening with the song of a child and lyrically celebrating the beauty of Florence and the hopes for liberty together, the poem begins on an optimistic high. The opening of the poem is almost a verbatim translation of uh, Elizabeth's detailed exultant letter describing the autumn spectacle before her uh, uh, to her sister. And it's presaging the springtime a few months later that ushered in the 1848 revolutions, mostly middle-class revolutions calling for the end of monarchy uh, and new civil civic rights for subjects. It calls up, for this 21st century reader, the optimism of Europe and the world for the Arab Spring. And they do for you too. And this is a long passage I've, that Sharon's going to read from that opening sequence. I heard last night a little child go singing neath Casagidi windows by the church. Oh, bella, libeta, libeta, oh, bella. Stringing the same words still on notes he went in search so high for, you concluded the upstringing of such a nimble bird to sky from perch must leave the whole bush in a tremble green. And that the heart of Italy must beat while such a voice had leave to rise serene twixt church and palace of a Florence street. A little child, too, who not long had been by mother's finger steadied on his feet, and still, oh, bella liberta, he sang. For me, 
who stand in Italy today, where worthier poets stood and sang before, I kiss their footsteps, yet their words gainsay. I can but muse in hope upon this shore of golden Arno as it shoots away through Florence's heart beneath her bridges four. Bent bridges, seeming to strain off like bows and tremble while the arrowy undertide shoots on and cleaves the marble as it goes and strikes up palace walls on either side and froths the cornice out in glittering rows with doors and windows quaintly multiplied and terrace sweeps and gazes upon all by whom if flower or kerchief were thrown out from any lattice there the same would fall into the river underneath no doubt it runs so close and fast twixt wall and wall how beautiful the mountains from without in silence listen for the word said next that day in florence flooding all her streets and piazzas with a tumult and desire, the people with accumulated heats and faces turned one way as if one fire both drew and flushed them, left their ancient beats and went up towards the palace pity wall to thank their grand duke, who, not quite of course, had graciously permitted at their call the citizens to use their civic force to guard their civic homes. So, one and all, the Tuscan cities streamed up to the source of this new good at Florence, taking it as good so far presageful of more good. The first torch of Italian freedom lit to toss in the next tiger's face who should approach too near them in a greedy fit the first pulse of an even flow of blood to prove the level of Italian veins towards rights perceived and granted. How we gazed from Casagidi windows while in trains of orderly procession, banners raised and intermittent bursts of martial strains which died upon the shout as if amazed by gladness beyond music, they passed on. Last, the world had sent the various children of her teeming flanks, Greeks, English, French, as if to a parliament of lovers of her Italy in ranks, each bearing its land symbol reverent, at which the stones seemed breaking into thanks and rattling up the sky. Such sounds in proof arose. The very house walls seemed to bend. The very windows, up from door to roof, flashed out a rapture of bright heads to mend with passionate looks the gestures whirling off a hurricane of leaves. Three hours did end while all these passed. Thanks. It's really a wonderful poem. It's, it, you, you gotta read it. <laughs> it's, and when Sharon reads it out, you, you know, you can feel its immediacy and its movement. Um, but even as part one traces the fast-moving political development, EBB voices her reservation about the Pope's actions and motives. Leopold II also proves a weak read on which to hang the hopes for liberty and unity. He leaves Florence only to return in the uniform of the hated Austrian rulers. 
The poem as a whole is not published until 1851, and the second part focuses on the aftermath, apportioning blame not only to the treasonous, weak Leopold. Um, you know, initially in this, in here she sees him in tears, and she talks about his tears, showing that he's a good man, a weeping, a weeping mid-19th century man. Uh, you know, showed that he had feeling, uh, but when he comes back, he's just weak. Um, and the Pope itself, but to popular leaders fighting amongst themselves. She also accuses them and the people not brave or energetic enough to continue their struggle. And to the nations retreating from and reacting against 1848, including England, who might in the great exhibition of 1851 celebrate different cultures in their imperial reach, but not support liberty in England. The fluent rhyme quatrains of Kasagidi windows with their immediate modern diction spoke directly to her readers by a confident poet who, despite the poem's preface, which claims that it is a simple story of personal impressions, does not pause to justify her right to comment on the unfolding events, even as in part two, she tends to her baby. And she's, she's had her son Panini by now, and she talks about the infant uh, in one passage and then for the two-year-old boy right at the end. So the woman poet includes her maternal role with her role as poet, and the baby comes into the picture. Uh, there's, no, there's no, you know, imaginatively, there's no division between the two. This is an extraordinarily inventive poem. It's like a great series of historical paintings, uh, it seems to me. Now, moving on, because we're getting to the end, but I'm going to go on to my full hour. If you, I hope you don't mind. Can you? Can we manage lunch if I do that? Because uh -huh. I, what? Yeah. Okay. Aurora Lee in 1856, which she calls her novel poem, uh, and as Simon says, divided into nine books, tries at another kind of mixed genre, moving away from rhyme to free verse, nearer to prose and more idiomatic, giving the speaker Aurora an alternate though converging history and story to Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Here, the protagonist, as I said, is born Italian, half Italian, sent as an adolescent orphan back to a repressive England in her aunt's country mansion, um, rejects her cousin Romney's marriage proposal together with his criticism of her literary ambitions and moves to London to rooms in Kensington with her maid. Uh, hearts, again, up some, up some steps. You're, you're never on the ground floor. You're always up near the garret poor but free to pursue a literary career. London, which the Brownings revisited in 51 and 56, comes into its own in Aurora Lee, though not as an idealized place at all. For, for Aurora, it's initially a place of work. And here, you know, she's very much a Carlylean. She really loves Thomas Carlyle's uh, work and writing. Like so many other of the brilliant women of the mid-century, uh, she, she, she was a kind of... Um, uh, you know, she, she sort of sat at Carlyle's knee in his sort of oppositional, but not always, uh, and rad sometimes radical and sometimes quite reactionary uh, uh, politics and thought. And he, here, so here, here she is talking about work. Um, it resonates still today. Sharon. I worked on, on, through all the bristling fence of nights and days which hedges time in from the eternities, I struggled, never stopped to note the stakes which hurt me in my course. The midnight oil would stink sometimes. There came some vulgar needs. 
I had to live that therefore I might work. And being poor, I was constrained for life to work with one hand for the booksellers while working with the other for myself and art. You swim with feet as well as hands or make small way. I apprehended this. In England, no one lives by verse that lives, and apprehending, I resolved by prose to make a space to sphere my living verse. I wrote for cyclopedias, magazines, and weekly papers, holding up my name to keep it from the mud. I learnt the use of the editorial we in a review. I wrote tales besides, carved many an article on the cherry stones to suit light readers. <laughs> and it's interesting here because you know she didn't need she she absolutely didn't need uh, uh, to work for a living. Uh, but here she imagines herself as someone like her contemporary and someone she admired, Harriet Martineau, who did have to do that, um, and who you know a, a sort of jobbing writer. Uh, and I, I like I like that very much. Um, The backbiting critics, the chattering classes, are wonderfully sketched in Aurora Lee as our friends and opponents, and the capital also allows Aurora's ambitions to soar above ballots and sonnets to epic, with no subject matter excluded. In the opening to book five, at the center of the poem, uh, she asks and answers her own question in one of my favorite passages in which the outspoken feminism of the poem finds its place in the bold figurative language of the sexual and the maternal. Shall I hope to speak my poems in mysterious tune with man and nature? With spring's delicious trouble in the ground, tormented by the quickened blood of roots and softly pricked by golden crocus sheaves in token of the harvest time of flowers? With winters and with autumns, and beyond with the, with the human heart's large seasons when it hopes and fears, joys, grieves and loves? With all that strain of sexual passion which devours the flesh in a sacrament of souls? With mother's breasts which round the new-made creatures hanging there throb luminous and harmonious like pure spheres? Nay, there's room for poets in this world, a little overgrown. I think there is. Their soul work is to represent the age, their age, not Charlemagne's, this live, throbbing age that brawls, cheats, maddens, calculates, aspires. Never flinch, but still, unscrupulously epic, catch upon the burning lava of a song, the full-veined, heaving, double-breasted age, that when the next shall come, the men of that may touch the impress with reverent hand and say, behold, Behold the paps we all have sucked. This bosom seems to beat still, or at least it sets ours beating. This is living art, which thus presents and thus records true life. Well, I think that's just amazing, and I don't see anybody writing a poem as, uh, in languages daring in that in the mid-1850s, except her contemporary uh, Walt Whitman, uh, and you can compare some of Whitman in the 1855 Leaves of Grass, if you know that book, uh, and there's where that language of sexuality and even maternal 
uh, on the maternal. Um, Whitman has a passage on birth <laughs> in Leaves of Grass. Uh, that, there just isn't any, you know, the censor, the censor hits the novel, but it doesn't hit poetry in quite the same way. Um, and I, I just think that's kind of amazing. But London was also the city where prostitution thrives, where in the Dickens of Dombey and Son uh, here, and also in the, in, the, in the novels of Mrs. Gaskell uh, and other contemporaries. Her cousin Romney, now a fully-fledged socialist, uh, influenced by the work of the French thinker Charles Fourier, um, has rescued a poor, a poor sempstress, Marion Earle, on the run from a brutal father and mother who would sell her to the highest bidder and decides to marry his protege in an exemplary egalitarian act. And this is no Lady Geraldine's courtship, you know. <laughs> this is a much more um, abstract act. And Marion's backstory and fate become the central to the rest of the poem. Uh, and she becomes, she becomes I'm, not, I'm not quoting just because there's too much to say, but there's, there's a lot of Marion's story that she tells to Aurora uh, about her brutal childhood in the, in, in the country and then later on her rape uh, and the birth of her child in Paris. Um, but I'm, and, and she, she becomes a kind of... A, um, She, they're twin figures, Aurora and Marion, for the rest of the poem. Uh, Marion comes to represent the maternal, the maternal that Aurora can represent in verse, but not yet in life. Um, and and she, she also becomes a, a kind of saint-like, I want to say a Christ figure, but I think that's what, probably going too far, uh, a saint-like figure um, in, in, as the poem comes to its conclusion. Visiting her in lodgings, Aurora gets a taste of the abject dehumanization of the very poor uh, and their in innate hostility to the gentry in their fine clothes. And when the marriage is staged at St. James Piccadilly, oh, sorry, I'll come back to that, that uh, in St. James Piccadilly, with the poor and rich invited, Elizabeth Barrett Browning creates a dramatic spectacle of what Benjamin Disraeli had called the two nations who neither knew or understood each other. In its own way, this passage is as shocking in its depiction of an underclass uh, beyond, uh, beyond rescue, uh, abandoned by God, that even the most liberal progressive thinkers feared as anything written in the period. Half St. Giles in Frieze was bidden to meet St. James in cloth of gold, and after contract at the altar, passed to eat a marriage feast on Hampstead Heath. Of course, the people came in uncompelled, lame, blind, and worse, sick, sorrowful, and worse. The humours of the peccant social wound all pressed out, poured down upon Pimlico, exasperating the unaccustomed air with hideous interfusion. You'd suppose a finished generation, dead of plague, swept outward from their grave into the sun. What an ugly crest of faces rose upon you everywhere from the crammed mass. Faces, oh my God, we call those faces? Men's and women's, aye, and children's, babies hanging like a rag forgotten on their mother's neck. Poor mouths wiped clean of mother's milk by mother's blow before they are taught her cursing. Faces, oh, we'll call them vices. 
festering to despairs or sorrows petrifying to vices. Not a finger touch of God left whole on them. All ruined, lost, the countenance worn out as the garment, the will dissolute as the act, the passions loose and draggling in the dirt to trip a foot up at the first free step. Those faces? T'was as if you'd stirred up hell to heave its lowest dreg fiends uppermost in fiery swirls of slime. Such strangled fronts, such obdurate jaws were thrown up constantly to twit you with your race, corrupt your blood, and grind to devilish colours all your dreams. Thanks. So that it's a, it's, a, it's a very uncomfortable passage for me. Uh, that, that passage, because it goes so far in dehumanizing the figures, even if, you know, and, um, and it contrasts, of course, a lot with, with her early revocation of the peaceful demonstration in Florence. And it also reflects her puzzlement as to how different the glad crowd in Florence is to an English crowd, where she writes to her sister, drunkenness and brutality are all too common. Uh, and she, she, sa she says, the, you know, the the English poor uh, are constrained by a culture which doesn't really appreciate art and culture, doesn't it introduce it into their life. It's as if, if they had more, and this is again Carlyle and others say, uh, in the period saying if they had more art, uh, you know, if they could appreciate the finer things, they wouldn't be like this, whereas the Italians are somehow writ through with the art and the place of Italy. Uh, so there's 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 a theory here, um, you know, that that contrasts itself uh, sort of subliminally in this. No surprise then when we learn in the poem that Romney sets up his philanthropy, uh, you know, his commune and his stately home with the London poor as his experimental community, and it all goes terribly wrong. Um, the place is sacked and set on fire. Uh, Meanwhile, back at St. James, Marion stands Romney up at the altar. She has been lied to and lured away by the scheming aristocrat Lady Waldemar, who loves him, and she's trafficked and abandoned in France, raped by a stranger and gives birth to a son, where Aurora finds and rescues her and the child, and the three of them move to Florence and set up a household together in a house on a hill in Bellascardo. Okay. All right, this is, this is St. Giles, and St. Giles was thought of as the epitome, the sort of, the, you know, the worst slum. It also included uh, a lot of Irish immigrants, and so there's also a kind of subliminal anti-Irish thing in choosing St. Giles as the place where all the poor came out of there. Uh, but she's not alone in this. Uh, you get that in Mrs. Gaskell and others, too, is that the Irish are, not, are, are a kind of underclass, a sort of subhuman group. Uh, and here, on a happier note, is Bellis Gardo. <laughs> and um, Flor and and here, Sharon. I'm almost there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I found a house at Florence on the hill of Bellis Gardo. Tis a tower which keeps a post of double observation o'er that valley of Arno, holding as a hand the outspread city. From the outer wall of the garden drops the mystic floating grey of olive trees with interruptions green from maize and vine, until tis caught and torn upon the abrupt black line of cypresses which signs the way to Florence. Beautiful the city lies along the ample vale, 
cathedral, tower and palace, piazza and street, the river trailing like a silver cord through all and curling loosely both before and after over the whole stretch of land sown whitely up and down its opposite slopes with farms and villas. So Florence, this Florence in the spectacle becomes an idealized world. And there is there in the middle of that verse, it seems to me, an evocation of Westminster Bridge, uh, you know, how the city lies asleep. It's almost a kind of, you know, it's sort of transmuted into the Florentine picture itself. And this, this idealized space in which small personal utopias uh, where, the, where they set up this household, of this women's household with the child, um, not the grand abstract schemes of French social theorists and their supposedly misguided English acolytes may be realized. When Romney, through twists and turns of the plot, no more or less credible than those in contemporary novels, visits them to make amends, but when Marion proudly refuses his renewed offer of marriage, he and Aurora, who has always loved him, are united, blind like Rochester in that novel she had read but claimed she didn't remember. Uh, the poem ends in Romney's, not Aurora's voice, but with him abandoning his belief, sadder and wiser, and joining her artistic project in which the fiery finger of art is the agent of change. Shine out for two, Aurora, and fulfill my falling short that must be. Work for two, as I, though thus restrained, for two shall love. The world waits for help. Beloved, let us love so well, our work shall be better for our love and still our love be sweeter for our work, and both commended for the sake of each by all true workers and true lovers born. Now press the clarion on thy woman's lip. Love's a holy kiss shall, shall still keep consecrate, and breathe thy fine, keen breath along the brass, and blow all class walls level as Jericho's. The world's old, but the old world waits the time to be renewed, towards which new hearts in individual growth must quicken and increase to multitude in new dynasties of the race of men. De developed whence shall grow spontaneously new churches, new economies, new laws admitting freedom, new societies excluding falsehood. He shall make all new. And that's how the poem ends on this utopian and optimistic note. But Italy then, thank you, thank you, Sharon, this becomes the other of England, loved but exiled, and America too, the land where change can be imagined if not immediately achieved. In her two final volumes, Poems Before Congress, 1860 and Last Poems, published posthumously, Elizabeth Barrett Browning returns to the agonistic question of Italy, uh, there are poems about Napoleon III, for example, who is very important in these last stages. Um, Italy, which does not does achieve the unification she desired under the Italian statesman, by no means a liberal, Cavour, but he did not quite live to see, and Cavour didn't live to quite to see it either because he dies before Elizabeth does in 1861. When she dies in Florence at 55 on July 29th, she was carried along a special route allowed only for those that, no, it's not, she died on June 29th 
and it's early July when she's carried along the special route allowed only for those the city honored to the English cemetery. Florence regarded her as the poet of Florence and of the Risorgimento. Here are some last pictures of her. Uh, the, the one on the left by an, an Italian artist, and it's part of a, a does one of Browning too, a, a second one of Browning. Uh, and, and she looks very Italianate, that, that portrait always to me. And again, it's in the, it's in the NPG if you go up to London. <coughs> uh, and here she is in the English cemetery, there's the beard. Wait, I'll put that back. No, I'll put the, okay, that's good. Right. Last Poems also contains um, another powerful anti-slavery poem, Curse for a Nation, which, from which I took the title of my very first book, A Critical Anthology of British and American Women Poets. A curse from the depths of womanhood is very salt and bitter and good. And again, it's quite a daring quote because what is the depths of womanhood? Is it tears or is it blood? Um, in this talk, I have emphasized about Browning's cosmopolitanism, her progressive agendas, her liberal, even democratic sympathies. But although she is one of my heroines for her exhilarating, bold, radical poetry and her feminism, I have always refrained from mistaking her uh, or appropriating her wholesale for the feminist and political causes of my own time. Finding that exploring her context and contradictions and the differences between her modernity and mine uh, and ours more satisfying. But I can't help ending with a defiant prose quotation from the preface to Poems Before Congress, an international meeting that never took place. It spoke, I think, to a predicament that nations and their representatives and their people are living with today. I confess that I dream of the day when an English statesman shall arise with a heart too large for England, having courage in the face of his countrymen to assert uh, of some suggested policy, this is good for your trade, this is necessary for your domination, but it will vex a people hard by, it will hurt a people farther off, it will profit nothing to the general humanity, therefore away with it, it is not for you or for me. When a British minister dares to speak so, and when a British public applauds him speaking, then shall the nation be glorious and her praise, instead of exploding from within, from loud civic mouths, come to her from without, as all worthy praise must, from the alliances she has fostered and the population she has saved. And poets who write of the events of that time shall not need to justify themselves in prefaces for ever so little jarring of the, nation, of the national sentiment imputable to their rhymes. Thank you. Thank you.